Well, good morning. I wanted to start by showing you this. I know Tony showed you some of this already, but we had that storm blow through. We were mowing the yard and uh, trying to get, we knew it was going to rain later in the evening. Then saw some lightning and the clouds and started raining. So we stood in the garage for a while, waited and realized our mowing time was over. And then we came in the house and knew it was going to last a while. Saw a little bit of hail start falling and it, it kind of backed off a little bit. And then all of a sudden I could hear like, boom, boom, boom. And this was the stuff that this was oh, stuff that was falling, oh, and yeah. it's just like so. Oh. That's so we had. I went out. So while it was still falling, I knew it was dumb or dangerous to do, but I thought I did. While it was still falling, I ran out and grabbed some. And I thought, man, I got out the yard. I thought, man, if I get hit with one of these, it's like. And so, yeah, I've I've never seen anything this big before. I've never seen. And when they were, hit, you could hear them hitting stuff, obviously, but they were like little meteorites coming down in the yard, just boom, boom, boom. And uh, fortunately, we had the car in the garage, and I had pulled my truck up and got it part of it in the garage, and the the sofa was overhanging it, so I think it's, I know it's fine. Then I went up and checked the roof. I thought for sure, and uh, I didn't see, I didn't see anything. And I had, of course, yesterday all the insurance guys are out you know trying to bid jobs and i've got a guy lined up if i need one but already in a local guy but i said well, go ahead i said I, I said i didn't see anything i said i'll come up there on the roof with you and you can show me all the damage he's like there's damage on everybody's roof so he looked around and he found one little spot and it really didn't have a dent it was just kind of still wet and he goes he goes well and i said but there was, no, there was nothing on the roof you can see that it hit hit one of our vents and one of the blades was kind of bent out, and one of the other just air vents was crushed on one side, but not worth. I mean, it's one of those things where I don't want someone up on my roof dinking around fixing those things, and I could just, you'll never see them. So, yeah, but boy, just what, about half mile north of here, north of here, mile up by Valley, they just, cars were just trashed in the parking lot. I mean, there's broken windows and all kinds of stuff, so some of them were totaled, you know. Um, well, Kim, did Kim's, Kim Snyder sent me a, she sent me a picture uh, of her car, and it was, I mean, it was just wrecked. I mean, it looked like she rolled it or something, so. When we pulled it, it was sitting in front of the grocery store, and I was standing inside, and when that thunder struck, most pressure I have ever Really? Yeah, that, yeah, it was something, you know, I've seen it hail before, obviously, yeah. but uh, not, I hadn't seen that size before. It was pretty impressive. Okay, well, hey, thank you for being here. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 through 28, talking about Moses. Uh, we got two parts where I want to look at. One is, if you want to say the application of what's being said here about Moses, and the idea is going to be, remember, he's writing it to 63 AD to the Christians in Jerusalem. And they're being pressured because they want to stay in the society. They want to stay with the religious system. But they're going to have to suffer the disgrace of, of going outside, going outside of the culture and going to Christ. And this is uh, what Moses is going to do. He's going to see the invisible Christ. He's going to understand. And the chapter begins, chapter 11 begins, by, by faith is being sure of things we hope for, certain of things we do not see meaning you you know it's there and you've got facts you've got evidence but that evidence is based on the personality of god it's based on what god has done and so you can see not not 
in, in, the, in the temporal time, but you can see by understanding what God is doing, there's something bigger out there, more glorious. And Moses is going to see Christ, the invisible Christ, he's going to see. So he's willing to walk away from Egypt. Now again, you understand the tension, uh, the glory of Egypt. He wasn't just an Egyptian, he was royalty in Egypt. He was potentially the next Pharaoh. He was, he was the crown prince. He was right there in line. And so he is looking at all the, the, you know, mo- the most glorious situation on earth at that time, and he walks away for the disgrace of Christ. Now, it wasn't, Christ is not disgraceful, but compared to the glory of Egypt, you're walking to join with a group of people who are slaves, they're in bondage, but they've got the promise, they've got Christ, and he's going to take them to a place in history and in eternity and to walk away from the glory of Egypt is to, in, in, in the world's eyes, to take the disgrace of Christ. And so Moses did that in chapter 13, verse 13. We'll see if we look at that verse today. Uh, Jesus is going to do that. He's going to suffer the disgrace of being crucified outside the city. And with, with Moses, with Christ, now these people of 63 AD, these are examples of them. You don't don't let the things of this world distract you from what you would think of taking an inferior position or taking a de, uh, you know demotion to becoming a Christian because Christ is more glorious than anything you can see in the world and so in a sense like Moses did or like Christ did you need to embrace this disgrace and join up with Christ because this is the only thing that's going to endure through the shaking the other thing i want to do besides the applications kind of building on that is again the history of where where we are at in the life of moses uh just because uh, for a variety of reasons but i think it's very interesting i think it adds to it and i think like i said i won't at the end of class last week i want to clean some things up so first i have oh let's do this we've got two basic dates for the exodus i'll say 14 uh, 46 and you know say 1250 this is during the days of Ramses or Ramses and this is during the days of after Thutmose the third it would be his son and you can see the son uh, after Thutmose on page two there's going to be two pharaohs coming after Thutmose the uh, third uh, it's going to be Amen Hatop uh, and Again, this is not, we're not absolutely sure uh, who these are, but these are two places where they place it. It could be the, a, a group of pharaohs after this, but I'm going to show you some biblical dates. First of all, I'm going to go to Exodus chapter, chapter 2 and just read this again to you. Or Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 1. Um, Chapter 1, verse verse 11. Uh, It says, uh, So they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Now these store cities are in the land of Goshen. If you have like the the coastal plain or the coast of the uh, Mediterranean Sea, the Nile Delta flowing down like this. This would be the land of Goshen right here. 
This is where the city of Avaris was in the days of Joseph, and they've excavated it, and they found the Semitic people in there. On top of that city was the city of Ramses, or Ramses was built on top of that as they excavate down. So this gives the impression they're building this city, the storehouses, at this city or at this location. Ramses is going to be the pharaoh around 1250. So that means the exodus had to take place after this. But there is no time. I mean, when you, biblically, there's no time for that to all take place. And I'll show you the... You don't have to accept what I'm saying, but you are going to have to counter what I'm saying. What probably is taking place is the people settled in Goshen, Joseph's and his family. The city of Avaris was their city that they built and occupied. The houses matched the style of houses that would come out of the north, out of uh, you know, Damascus, out of Haran, out of where Canaan was. And so it was definitely that type of people, the Semitic people, the Asians, if you would. Uh, and that's where the oppression began around this time period. Uh, and then later, after they were gone, Ramses builds it up and makes it into a store city, builds on top, just like you build on layers. And the people that were editing the Bible, that were putting it together, not changing the facts, but they knew where this city was. And that's where the slaves were building the city, but it wasn't named that city yet. It's just like whatever uh, like you know, Native Americans would have called certain places like we would call it the Mississippi River. They may not have called it the Mississippi River. We call it the Mississippi River. So you go back, you know, talk about, you know, in 1300, the Mississippi River. Well, that's not what it was called, but we don't know what it was called. We know it as the Mississippi. Now, that's what's taking place. Now, to come against this ideal of the 1250 Exodus in that time period, I want to show you this page right here. It's a single page right here. It's called the Mernepta Stel, or Steli, it's uh it's got a mo- it's got all kinds of inscriptions you see the pharaohs on it it's pharaoh ramses uh from 1279 to 1213 that's who was building the storehouses uh that you know that there there's that's the name of the place where the storehouses were being built it's often said to be the pharaoh of the exodus by many scholars and i i wrote some things right there that i put in there uh Pharaoh Merneptah from 1213 to 1203 in the year 1205 indicating that he had attacked and destroyed a nation called Israel located in Canaan. So on this stell, down there in that little square box, and you turn the page over and you can see what's in that box in the hieroglyphics. And there's the translation. A little literal translation says, Israel is laid waste does not exist his grain or his seed of israel has become a widow meaning mern mern in 1205 he is writing on an egyptian monument about his battles and he says in 1205 i have entered into the land of canaan and i have fought israel and I have totally eliminated Israel as a people. Their seed is being removed from the earth. Now, the problem with this is if you've got, say, a 12, well, as I go through, you can see, uh, they, they got a tw- uh, t- an exodus in, in say, uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Now they're down to 1210, and he's going to go in there. In the middle of Joshua laying waste the land and taking over, 
Mernapah is coming in and, and saying that he's destroyed Israel. And it, it just doesn't make sense because they're not even in the land. They're, they're still invading the land. In fact, at that time, what we have is the Armarna letters written on, on, uh, in cuneiform writing going down into Egypt where rulers of Canaanite cities are begging the Pharaoh to come help them because they're being overrun by these invaders. Uh, and they, th that dates, that, that's taking place around, let's say, 1390, which would be if Joshua was in the land, he'd be going in the land of, in, into uh, the land of Israel around 1406. He's got a seven-year span uh, where he's got his campaigns. And these Amarna letters are written at this time, and Pharaoh's not showing up. They go, well, where are you? Well, after the exodus takes place in 1446, there's a 40-year gap where Egypt, their power just wanes. They just, just, like they just retreat. They've got to rebuild the economy. They've got to rebuild the military. They've got to rebuild the confidence in the gods, their whole society. And about that time, they're, well, they're also being <laughs> invaded by the Sea People, which became part of the Philistines, in, where the Philistines were infiltrated with the Greeks. And so during this time period right here, from 1406 to 1309, it matches perfectly with Joshua's invasion land. There's a vacuum. Egypt is not coming up to stop them because they're still recovering from the exodus. They're also fighting the Sea People coming in from the west. And so this doesn't, doesn't make sense. And that's proven by Egyptians' own monuments. Now, go to the notes on the first page. And now you're going to have to deal with this. Um, go to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, if you want to. I've got it written there on your, your notes. You can read it there. 1 Kings chapter 6. And this is where uh, Solomon is getting ready to build the, the, uh, the temple. You know, David has made plans for it. He's got the supplies laid out for it. And now David has died, and Solomon has come into power. And Solomon is going to start to... Uh, do the work on the temple, which is a big, big deal. And here it is. This is out of the Bible now. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So there you have it, right? That's the, if you can figure that out, that's when the Exodus took place. And so on these notes, <coughs> point one there, uh, is a good date for Solomon becoming king. Uh, 1005 would be the time that David takes Jerusalem. That would fit. Uh, he's going to be king for a total of 40 years, which involves like seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. But a, a good date for Solomon becoming king is 970. And so what you would do there is... Uh, you, you take the uh, uh, um, the 970, and it says his fourth year, so you, 966 is when 966 is when Solomon began building the temple, according to that verse. And it says he began in, as you can see right there, in the 480th year. So you simply take 966, 480 years, six. Uh, 12, 14, 10, 14. The Exodus took place in 1446. 
Now, if you're going to say 1250, you're going to have to subtract 480 years. And now let me do the math here real sloppy on the board. Stop me when I make a mistake. Now you're, Solomon began building the temple in 770 B.C. Well, the, the Assyrians have already began invading. Uh, northern Israel is collapsing. Uh, you're, you're, you're approaching the time of, 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 uh, of uh, Isaiah's ministry. I mean, you, you, now you're going to crunch the entire Old Testament down to 150 years. And so this doesn't make sense. Now, if you are of the opinion, well, the Bible's not accurate, and it's just legend, well, then it's a free-for-all. I mean, you, you, whatever you want, you pick and choose. But if you're going to go with Egyptian information that's in monuments, and you're going to go with the literature of the Scriptures as if it's... I mean, they're, they're giving you dates. They're giving you months. They're, they're dating the most important event of the Old Testament, the beginning of the building of the, of the, old, of the temple. You're going to end up with 1446. Now, we go to another verse. Go to Judges chapter 11, if you don't mind. Judges chapter 11. Now, some would say, and that's a fair criticism, what does this have to do with Hebrews? Well, in a sense, we could say nothing. Uh, we could just keep reading those verses. But what it does for me, being the uh, raised in the secular humanistic society and knowing the Bible's just a myth, it helps, instead of me just, you know, trusting the, these verses mystically like you just got to have faith you just got to have faith it's like it builds a foundation it's no longer secular humanism these are historical facts when it says moses despised egypt and embraced the, the the disgrace of christ it's like well what a great concept that'd be a cool t-shirt we should write a song about that it's like no you, you can have t-shirts you can write songs but this is what moses did he's walking out of this empire to for christ which now makes sense for me, who's living in America in the 20, what is it, 21st century. It's like, what, are you going to follow the corruption of the society? Or are you going to embrace Christ? Uh, and it's like, well, Moses did it. And, and he, you know, I'm a shop teacher. He, he was going to be the crown. He's the crown prince. Jesus did it. These people in 63 AD are being told to do it. It's like all of a sudden it becomes a historical reference point of historical events of people that followed Christ 3,000 years ago, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. It's like, now it's your turn. What are you going to do? Well, I'm just going to wear a T-shirt and sing a song. Or are you actually going to embrace the historical moment and walk away from the honor of whatever society is saying, and I'm going to embrace Christ? Uh, it, it's a historical thing. I mean, Moses was a historical figure. And if you can turn him into a legend, if you can turn him into a myth, well, then you've got Jesus dying on the cross is a myth, and you've got Adam and Eve, they're sinning in the garden. Jesus died for the sin of mankind. Well, there really wasn't a real Adam and a real Eve. Then Jesus died for mythical, a mythical story, a nursery story. And did he even really die? I mean, he probably lived. It's like, also, it's like you have no, you, now you have no substance for your faith. Once you establish Adam and Eve were real, Jesus was real. Moses was a historical figure. These are the foundations of your faith. So then with that foundation, you can understand Hebrews chapter 11, the beginning. By faith, we understand. We know these things. Now we're asking you to see something bigger. There's no historical evidence of certain things, but we're asking you to, based on these events, do you see what's going on? It's like, oh, now I see it. Do you see? No, I don't really see it, but now I understand it that something bigger is taking place here. And once you, once you turn the scriptures into a myth, 
I guarantee you, you can't have faith. You, you don't have, you may have a wish, you may be mystical, you may have goosebumps, you may hope that there's a God, you may convince yourself, but in a moment of crisis, your faith is going to collapse, it's going to pop like a balloon because you've got nothing, you have no substance, you've got no truth. And so that's why this is, in a sense, important. Um, we got one more verse, and this is a little more challenging just because it's in the book of Judges, and it's like, you know, who knows Judges? Judges chapter 11, verse 26, or well, we do. Um, this is now the story of Jephthah. And I'm going to need to put a little map up here, if you don't mind. And again, we're talking about 1446. Here's Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Uh, Jephthah comes up from this area here. He's, he's gonna, now, these guys, he's a judge. He's going to be one of the judges, one of the leaders, military leaders of the, of the time period, after Joshua, before the time of Saul. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible time in Israel. I mean, their, their culture is unraveled and is is completely confused they brought in canaanite ideology they're filled with false philosophy and they're going to talk about these people these are the in a sense the heroes but they're heroes of god they're they're following in a sense of faith but they it's like they've never been to a bible study in their life and yet they're people of faith it's like imagine knowing nothing imagine going to a church that doesn't teach the bible but you're people of faith and now you come to a time of cruise, and you follow God. You believe in God. You, you, you know there's a God, and you know that Jesus died for your sins, but you don't know anything about the Bible or truth or facts, but you've got something in your head. Well, you're going to come, it comes crunch time. You're going to have to start making decisions, and you're going to have to reach for some philosophy, some ideology, some, you know, priority that's based on your culture, which has been infiltrated, in this case, by the Canaanites. So he believes in God, he's going to follow God, but has no understanding. He's going to be one of that, again, we'll see the story here. So I mean, these people in the book of Judges are not necessarily moral heroes. They're heroes that God used to get his people to the next level, because God's plan is going to be successful. Nonetheless, they're having trouble. As you, again, I don't want to teach this whole story there, I'm looking at it from here. Uh, the men of Ephraim called out their forces across the Zephon and said to Zeph, uh, Japheth, why did you go to fight the Amorites, Ammonites without calling us to you? And again, now you got Israel fighting with Israel. And he's gone down here. They're having trouble with the Ammonites. Ammonites down here. In fact, they've been driven over because Moses came up through this area. They took this land. There right here is a, is a river going into the Dead Sea called the Arnon. Here's a river called the Jabbok. Um, that's where the river that Jacob crossed when he met Esau. He stayed on this side and fought the angel of the Lord there. That story. Um, and this territory is going to be given to, this is going to be given to Reuben. This is going to be given to Gad. And this land across here is going to be given to Manasseh. So Israel's been living there since the days of Moses, since they crossed over Israel's been living there. Well, now the, the Ammonites who were living over here for the last 300 years are saying, this is our territory. And Jephthah's going to make this statement. And the whole thing, we can look at the whole story situation, but what we need to know is 11, chapter 11, verse 26. Chapter 11, verse 26. Um, and you can, there's a whole dialogue there, a whole conversation. Look in verse 14. Jephthah sent back messenger, messengers to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says, and you've got his whole 
letter that he sent back with messengers because the Ammonite king is challenging him for having gone down here to fight. And uh, in verse 26, I'll begin at verse 25, he says, Are you better than Balak, son of Zephor? Because remember, that's where Balak was at, uh, trying to take over the Israelites, and, and he lost. Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? Meaning once that battle was over, the king Balak went away. They, they let Israel stay where they were at. They, they learned their lesson. He says, now in verse 26, For 300 years, Israel occupied Hezbon, Aurora, and the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. So these are all cities. We occupied this land. This is all the city from the Arnon up to the Jabbok. He says, watch what he says. He says, for 300 years, we have occupied this land. And 300 years ago would have been when they had a conflict with uh, uh, Balaam, came down with, for the king of uh, king Beor, uh, uh, of Balak and Balaam came down for Balak, the king, and tried to curse Israel 300 years before. And that landed in dismal failure. So for 300 years, Israel's occupied this land. So the whole point there is the number 300. And so if you look right there, if you take the year 14, now you've got to go 1406, because the Exodus takes place in 1446, I'm presenting, 40 years in the wilderness, and they enter the land in 1406. Now you subtract this out, you're going to have, this is, Jephthah is living right around the year 1106. So whenever Jephthah is living, Israel's been in the land for 300 years. And he uses that as an argument in a long letter he sent back down to the king who's having a debate with. He's calling, and he's, the king's living in this area, so they know their history. It's been 300 years. And he's like, that's not been 300 years, that was two weeks ago. You know, it was like, so it's histor in, in their case, he's arguing back and forth with somebody using evidence that's got to be true, at least in their understanding. And so that puts him at 1106, and you can add that up going on with this. Um, if you've got David taking Jerusalem in, say, 1005, you've got to have Saul being king around 10, what did I have written down here, uh, 1050. See, so you've got Jephthah, who's one of the judges. You're going to have to have a time of Samuel, who's going to be ruling and helping the people, anointing King Saul. There's too many zeros there. Anointing King Saul, who's going to rule for 40 years, giving way to David. And by the time you get to 970, you've got Solomon. So once again, to get these verses to match, you've got to have this time period in here. You've got to have 40 years for David, 40 years for Saul, a time of Samuel, and 300 years going back to the Exodus. So once again, if you're going to go with the Bible, 1446, the time of Thutmose III, uh, his stepmother, Hafshetzit, is a good time to, to go. Now again, we don't have Moses' name written on stone uh, in Egypt because again, they, they wouldn't record that. Um, and if it was recorded, they would have gotten rid of it. So going back to this right here, the history of this, I'm going to try to say what I was saying last week. You're going to have the king that came in, the, 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 the king that threw out the, the Semitic people, the Semitic, the Hyksos, is the king, the first king that does this is Amon Hatop. Hatop, along with his son, Thutmose the first. 
Now, Thutmose I, as we can see right here, is going to become a king, and he's going to have, uh, he's going to have three children. We've got them written, or four children. One of them, two of the sons are going to die. Wasmos, and notice they've all got most in them. Amonmos, then he's going to have a daughter named Hafshetset, which again is a person I'm very impressed with in history. Uh, and then a harem son named Thutmose uh, II. Now, Thutmose II is going to be weak. Physically, he's going to be ailing. I'll just write ailing. He is not a great man. He's not a great specimen. Uh, he's going to struggle his entire life, apparently. He is going to marry Hafshetset, his sister, because he is, again, a... Uh, 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 a harem son. He half sheds it is, in a sense, the a daughter of royalty. She's got the royal blood, her mom and her dad. Thutmose II is a weak king. He's not royalty, but by marrying half sheds it, he's got the title. He's going to die young. Now, Thutmose, in this household, they're going to have three basic children. Half sheds it and Thutmose are going to have a daughter named. Uh, let me spell it right here. I've got Neferuri. Where is it written down so I spell it right? It's on the next page. No, oh, yeah, there it is. And thank you. Yeah, you're all like on pins and needles. Is, is he going to mess this up again this time? That, that's their, she is the royal daughter, but she's not a male. Uh, there's going to be a harem son born, and that is Thutmose III. Uh, he's going to become, in a sense, when his father dies, he's going to become the pharaoh at the age of like two years old. But of course, he can't rule and reign. And that's where his stepmom, because his mom is a harem lady, his stepmom, Hapshetzit, is going to step up and she's going to reign with him. So Hapshetzit is going to be be, and it's easy sell for her because she's royal blood of Thutmose I and the founder of the dynasty. Her father is Thutmose I. Her grandfather is Amenhotep. So Hafshetzit has grown up. She's got the reputation. She, and they don't have social media like we've got. They've just got monuments. She's just got to keep her, just control her situation. And the actual king, Pharaoh, is Thutmose III. And so they become co-regents. Now, Hafshetzit, is probably, while she was living in the house of Amenhotep, is probably the princess who found the Pharaoh's daughter, who found Moses, and brought Moses in. So be, along with Neferuri, Thutmose III, you've also got this guy in here named Moses. And it's like, he fits, look at the names, Moses. I mean, they called him Moses even as an adult in the Bible. There's, you've got uh, Thutmose, you've got Thutmose II, you've got Amenhotep, you've got, this is just, Moses just, He's right there. It's the, it's the name. And then this is a good place to place Moses in the line. He was the crown prince. Josephus talks about it. And we went, I gave you some material last week. But Moses would have been uh, one of the adventures that Josephus records is them being invaded from the, the south, which would be from upper Egypt, they'd call that, up, you know, where the river begins, from Cush or Ethiopia. And Moses was the general, and he goes off, and they'd been invaded, and so their military had been defeated, and so Moses basically, all that's left is like the local police forces. I mean, if you want to put it in modern terms, they, 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 they're being invaded, and their troops are keep getting just mowed down, and so Moses is called on, 
And he, this is during that first 40 years, he goes down with generally organizes the police force and invades Ethiopia, drives them back to their, their city and uh, negotiates a peace treaty. In that peace treaty, the princess, in the story goes, saw Moses and was amazed and wanted to be part of the peace treaty. So Moses marries the princess from Cush, the Cushite woman, possibly, in, this, in the Bible. We've got uh, Jethro's daughter coming, but this may be the Cushite woman originally, because according to Josephus, he marries the princess of Ethiopia, and that secures the peace treaty. Again, that's in Josephus. That's not in the Bible. But at some place, Moses becomes, like we say, he became a very powerful person. Uh, he, he did a uh, train in all the other areas. Uh, there's many other stories that you can find in Jewish literature about how great Moses was in Egypt. So their understanding throughout Israelite history was Moses during these 40 years wasn't just sitting somewhere, you know, drinking, you know, malts or something. He was, he was a player in, and was the next crown prince. And that's where that decision is going to come, where in this place, he would have been Thutmose III. Now, Moses in 1446, uh, excuse me, that's when the Exodus takes place. Moses, sometime before that time, at 40 years to that, he is going to leave. And that leaves Hafshetzit and Thutmose to rule and reign. And Hafshetzit is controlling Thutmose, and it depends on how it goes. Uh, you can see a picture of, that's Hafshetzit on the front page right there. There's many monuments. We've got her tomb. They've got her coffin. The, I mean, there's many things. And you can see she's a woman, but the longer it goes as she's ruling and reigning, she, her monuments change from, she no longer has breasts, and she starts wearing the pharaoh's beard. And it's still called Hafshetzit. I mean, she's, she's trying to play. You can see kind of trying to take over and maybe hold him back. The year she dies and is removed from history, that's the year. She w he was her general. Thutmose was the general. He had 17 major campaigns. The year she dies, he take, and he was a military genius, and he, go, he invades uh, Israel, or the land of the Canaanites. That's where he, had, he wins Megiddo. There's a whole, there's, there's all these battles, or many of these battles are recorded by the scribes, so we know what he did, and you can see the archaeological remains of these battles. Um, and so he is going to, with Hafshetzit and him, they're going to extend the empire. And you got a picture of Thutmose III on the next page. There you can see him. He's got the, uh, he's got the Pharaoh's beard going there. And uh, some of the information about uh, Thutmose III reigned from the age two until he died at 56. Hafshetzit was his royal stepmother, was co-regent for 22 years. Now, while this is taking place, Moses is in the land of Midian. He's out watching sheep. I mean, Thutmose basically replaced, if the story is accurate, I mean, we've got stories going together here, if we're making the right connection. Moses should have been the Thutmose, and he would have been one of the geniuses of military history. He would have made Egypt great. He would have had a monument. You'd study about Moses. I'm not sure what his name would have been, Thutmose. You know, what, I mean, that's the name of the god. What, what his name would have been, Egyptian-wise, uh, if that was the case. But uh, he chose, instead of this glory, instead of having a, uh, you know, an image like this that we'd see in museums, he chose Christ, and he disappeared from history. Uh, after Hefshetzit dies, this is where you start seeing Thutmose start trying to take credit for the many of the things she did. 
uh, chiseling her name off of monuments, which no doubt, I mean, we got evidence of her changing monuments, and you got clearly evidence of him taking her name off of monuments, which, why is Moses not listed anywhere? Well, figure it out. I mean, he just, he was the crown prince, sided with the, the slaves, and then eventually led the slaves out. I mean, everybody, they're going to clean their history. They're, I mean, every, it wasn't just, you know, a week, we're going to get rid of Moses' name. Oh, we missed the place. I mean, forever in Egyptian history, if that ever popped up for the next 200 years, the name, oh, there it is again. They would have gotten rid of it. They would have erased it from their history. Now, what we're waiting for is something to pop up somewhere uh, and again, again, I think it's got to be somewhere if, if the Bible's true. Again, if it's exactly with this dynasty, that's, that's you know, worth check, challenging and, and you know, ch- uh, changing if that's not right. Um, I got other things there. Okay, Thutmose's first son died, but he wasn't the fair. Thutmose dies before the, before the exodus. Because remember, Moses is told the Pharaoh has died the pharaoh you fled from and who would have been the pharaoh he fled from the pharaoh he fled from would have been hafshetzit or the young thutmose how that would go or me or how this all puts together and his fleeing may have had a ramifications on hafshetzit for bringing the viper into the palace you know however that works out but these are and these and she's dies thutmose the third dies and egypt is at the crown of their power and uh, Thutmose's son, uh, uh, Amenhotep II, begins to reign. And then he would be, you see, 1450 to 1425. Amenhotep, I don't have an image of him. We've got his, you know, or they've got his monuments. They've got tombs. They've got mummies. Uh, he is the pharaoh of the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus occurs, and I got 1441 here, 1446. Uh, Amenhotep is not replaced by his eldest son, but by a younger son, Thutmose Fourth. So Amenhotep's son dies before he becomes Pharaoh, which matches the firstborn story. But his son Thutmose IV becomes Pharaoh. And then Thutmose IV reigns from, okay, I got 1425 to 2408. Uh, That should be 1425 to 1408. He's reigning up until the time that uh, Joshua is about to take him across. And by the time Thutmose IV lives and dies and the pharaoh that follows egypt is struggling they're having all kinds of trouble which opens the way up for joshua just cross in and now joshua is fighting the canaanite kings and is not worrying about having to face the egyptian uh persecutor uh retribution coming back so it all matches historically with that being said let's go back to hebrews again if you don't like half shetzit story and thutmose the third uh and you want to go with Ramses in 1250, I think that's weak. Uh, but you can do that. Um, but if you want to look, find another dynasty somewhere and match it up, because it, someone wanted to put maybe it's not in the 1400s, maybe in the 1300s, uh, you, you can you know, try that. But that's kind of uh, a pretty interesting match as far as that goes. Now we're going back to Hebrews chapter 11. And, and we'll, we'll finish Moses today. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, and, and the issue here is really, uh, the biggest point is Moses walking away from this world, and there's nothing there to see. I mean, you've got, you've got a bunch of slaves that are oppressed by 
your people, you know, his, his royal people are oppressing these slaves, and all they've got is a large group of people that are working for the Egyptians, but what they have is a promise. They have the word of God. They've got the Abrahamic covenant. They've got a promise that they're going to be brought to this land, that they're going to be enslaved in this land, and after 400 years, God's going to come get them and take them out of this land. But they have nothing. I mean, it's like, that's all they got. They've got this. Now, again, they've got, they've got solid evidence. They've got, they know Abraham existed, Jacob, or Isaac, Jacob. Joseph's tomb is right there. They've got written documents. So they've got evidence, but they're slaves. They can't see the promised land. They don't feel like they're going to the promised land. They don't even feel like they're close. The Egyptians have come up to the, they're the highest power of the kingdom with Thutmose III. It's like the chance of deliverance are like, it's, it's a dream. It, it's not even, but Moses in that height of position saw that and saw greater value in that promise. Now you understand what kind of faith this is. So now if you're oppressed and you got like, you're losing on this side and losing on this side, it's like you're losing in the world and you don't know what to do spiritually. It's like, well, I'm never going to win in the world. I'll just become a Christian. I mean, okay, you're just defaulting. It's like, I might as well hope in something. Well, that's noble. I mean, you're at least choosing Christ. But to be at the top of the world and walk away from it because you, you're, you actually can compare everything in the world to everything in the kingdom of God and realize this is not worth fighting for. I'm going to wait for the kingdom of God. That's, that's a powerful move right there because you're actually walking away from something of substance. You're not just defaulting, I mean, and not taking anything away from that. But Mo, that's why Moses is a great example. And again, why Moses is used as an example, like we said last week, as an example of faith. It doesn't say he's the one who gave them the law. It doesn't say he was legalistic. It doesn't say he was, you know, followed the law to all the details, followed the dietary laws. It says he had faith. He just keeps acting in faith. Now, that faith is going to cause him to institute the laws God's following him, but he's, he, you would think that to the Hebrews, to the Jews in 63 AD, what Moses is known for is the law, the legal code. And they don't even mention it. They, they, what is important is like he had faith. He walked away from Egypt for this. Okay, here it is. Chapter, 20, chapter 11, verse 23. Um, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Amram and Jochebed, his parents, because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They, the king would have been probably Thutmose uh, II or Amenhotep the, 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 I or Thutmose II uh, that was putting these children in the river. They, they saw something about him. And again, that becomes very legendary, mystical of what did they see. I mean, something he was, you know, that he was just a, a very unique child. He was, you know, brighter. He was stronger. He was taller. He was larger. Just something unique about him. And throughout the stories of Josephus and even Philo, Moses is always, like when someone sees Moses, they're like, oh. they're like taken back by his stature, his beauty, his look, his appearance. Uh, again, they saw something. And again, even Stephen records that, that it was something unique about this child. Maybe it was a, we don't know the details, but there is some indication that we would have had some kind of a vision, just like Mary was visited by an angel or Joseph was visited by angels. This child is going to be the son of God. Joseph and Mary were told. 
uh, did they have something like that? They knew that this was no ordinary child. You all can throw your babies in the river, but God told us, don't throw this baby in the river. I mean, what, you know. So we don't know the details, but that's always there that they knew this was special. And again, if they're paying attention to the, the writings, it's gonna, we're coming up on 400 years of being in the land, and they are slaves. And the next thing, you go to the land for 400 years, you're going to become slaves. What happens next? We get delivered with great possessions. It's like we're there. And even, even that's part of the reason they're throwing the babies in the waters. They know that there's something happening here spiritually. So anyway, they put him in the water. He was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid. They weren't afraid. They just knew they had to manage the situation. By faith, Moses, when he had a, a grown up, and we looked at that word last week, it includes the word mega, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, and that, I mean, that's pretty much saying refused to be known as the crown prince because it's Pharaoh, half shets it, would have been royal. She was royalty. And this was her adopted son. And there's, the Romans did it. They've done it throughout the ages. You can adopt a son. And if you legally make him your son, he is now your heir. You can, you, you can do this. Uh, Abraham did that. Eliezer of Damascus will be his heir. He would have adopted his, one of his servants, adopted him as a son. You in, so in, when it says his, her son, that's saying Moses was in line to be the crown prince. And when you compare that to Thutmose III and what he was able to do, you realize what Moses was walking away from. He was walking away from one of the high points of Egyptian history. But he refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter. Now right there, he's seeing something. I mean, He's got his hands on it. He, he knows this lifestyle. He knows this world. He was a hero in this world. And we could go through and list even more things that he was known for in Egypt, including singing. I mean, that was part of He was a great singer, a great speaker. He was a great rhetorician. People, and he's like, oh, Moses could sing and was a great rhetorician. Well, read Deuteronomy. He sings the book of Deuteronomy. So, I mean, it's like he's, he's a rhetorician, but not just a great speaker. It's like, you know, Ronald Reagan coming out and having a great national address, but instead of just speaking, he's going to sing his way through it with backup bands, and it's like, wow, wow, that was good. I mean, that, that's, that gives you the impression of Moses in Egypt, but you say, I don't know if that's true. Okay, forget it. It's true in Deuteronomy. I mean, that's what Deuteronomy is, is Moses singing to millions of how many people were out there in the wilderness, and he's singing to the second generation the accounts of the, of the Exodus and what God is doing. It's like, I, I can barely speak my way for an hour, let alone sing rhythmically, enough that you and all just like, yeah, we got to get going, you know. And then to have the whole book of Deuteronomy. I mean, it's not going to be like, well, it's an hour, it's pretty good, wrap this up. I mean, you're going to sing the book of Deuteronomy. It's going to take like, you know, we'll take break and we'll come back after lunch and finish, you know. So nonetheless, he'd become great. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, and indeed he was mistreated, you know, even joining them, but he ended up 40 years in the wilderness. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasure of, pleasures of sin for a short time. And again, I mentioned that before, that pleasures, it wasn't like he was living an immoral life. If he's going to be a great leader, he's going to have to have some kind of moral fiber but the sin is just the whole concept of the temporal world. You're living for the te- If you're living for the temporal world, you're choosing sin. And it's not like, well, we think of sin, well, that must be immoral and, and misbehavior and lying and deception. That, that, that's the specifics, if you want. S- the choosing the world over Christ is in itself 
you're choosing sin. It's like that's, that's not the mark. You're missing the mark. The mark is Christ, and you're choosing the world. It's like, no. It's like, and he, the world may say, the world may say Thutmose the third was a, a great man, a great leader, a military genius. He had moral fiber. But if he's choosing Egypt over Christ, you just chose sin. And so that, that's the concept of, of choosing. It was like Moses was like, I don't know if I'm going to live an immoral life and do drugs or if I'm going to choose Christ and go to church on Sundays. I don't, it wasn't that. It's like, are you going to live as the Pharaoh in this temporal kingdom, sin, or are you going to choose Christ for an eternal kingdom and live in disgrace? It's like, I'll choose disgrace over sin. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded, and this is the, really the key verse for these people, for us, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He chose this, this empty space that he knows there's a promise here. He chose this, which looks like disgrace in the world's eyes, over all the honors of Egypt, he chose this because this is temporary and it's already, they're already building my tomb. Again, when, when you see those Pharaoh's tombs, they didn't build those, you know, they didn't bury them three days after they died. They had a funeral three days later, quick, build a tomb. I mean, you can't build those. Those tombs took decades. So when you became Pharaoh, one of the first orders you would give is, Let's start my tomb. I've got a vision, and you have the build architect draw it up, and they'd start building your tomb. You could go out there, you know, every day, kind of check out your tomb, because this is where you're going to spend eternity. This is your doorway into eternity. This is the monument forever. People know who you are because of this tomb. You might be 20, you might be a pharaoh for a, a, a month, a, a year. You might be 20 years old. And so it's going to take you, you know, 40 years to build your tomb. So when you die, and some tombs they can see, they weren't completed. It's like we needed another decade. It's like, well, just put some names on the wall and get them in there but like half she had as a glorious tomb and it, she didn't they didn't build it you know well she half died we better get a tomb built so moses you can imagine had a spot picked out you know not just his plot but he had a spot picked out and they were probably building the tomb of moses already because someday he's going to die so in it, what i'm saying that for is temporarily he chose uh, he, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Uh, he was looking ahead to the reward here because he knew that this age was already passing away. I mean, if you're already cutting your tomb, it's like, so you're already, yeah, I'm preparing for the end. So whatever you have now, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting less and less and less and less. It's dwindling. So it's, when you think about it, it's a no-brainer. This is already passing away. This is right out of the New Testament. This age is already passing away. Let's move into something that's growing. And that's what's happening here is we're investing time in this eternal kingdom that's growing. And we're using the time that, you know, as the hourglass is running smaller and smaller, running out of time here. We're investing what we've got here into something of eternal value. If you're just going to spend here, it's like you're just getting less and less and less. You're running out of time. And prison it's gone. And you, ha- you have nothing. You haven't invested anything. Moses threw away the whole thing because he was looking ahead to his reward. Notice when it says looking ahead to his reward, it means he didn't get his reward. He didn't say, I'm going to walk away from Egypt and I'm going to have my best life now. 
I'm walking away from Egypt. I'm going to make good choices. I'm going to watch my family come back together. I'm going to start to prosper in the things of God. And I'm going to have my best life now. No, 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 no. He was having his best life now. And he walked away to suffer and continue to suffer because he's looking ahead to his reward. And the reward is not going to come in time. This reward is not going to come in time. It's coming in the future. So you're walking away from everything and walking into nothing except you've got the promise. You've got the word of God. You've got the things that you're investing in and you're going to get it in the future. So it's very clear again, I think. Again, you say, well, look, he got to be the leaders of, leader of Israel. He got to lead Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Um, I think all of us, if you read the story, would say, yeah, I would rather not. I'd rather, how about if I just, can I just go be a Levite or something? Uh, do you, you, know, you got to think Moses some days would just walk away. Okay, verse 27. Well, yeah, I, I could go down that road to this not, though. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. So he didn't run in fear. That's important. He wasn't running in fear. He was running towards a goal. He wasn't afraid of the king of Egypt. He maybe was afraid of the Lord, but he wasn't running in fear. He was running towards the opportunity or looking for the answers. He persevered, I would say 40 years in the wilderness, because he saw him who is invisible. Now again, we, we're, we're not just writing history here, and again, I'm spending too much time historically putting it in perspective, but we're writing to the Jews in Israel, in Jerusalem, in 63 AD, and every one of these lines, they've got to hear it in their setting, just like you've got to hear it for your setting, and that the author is writing to them. Now, we can make application in our lives, but the text is literally being written to Hebrews, Jews, in 63 AD, or in that time frame. And so, he, Moses, considered Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. How should they hear that? You, the Jews that have become Christians, need to consider Christ of greater value than the treasures of your current culture. What you, because they're being pressured. It's like all you've got is Christ and you just got persecution. Understand, that's of greater value than what is persecuting you. Let, let it go. Don't look back. Uh, by faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. Again, you're going to leave your culture and join with Christ, and you're not afraid of the people that are pursuing you. You're pursuing Christ. You're not running because you're afraid. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now, the reason Moses could persevere is because he continued to see him who is invisible. Now, you understand that's an oxymoron. But that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is by faith you understand, and once you understand, you can see the invisible. You're not really seeing it, but your understanding of what you know helps you perceive and comprehend what is not here yet. So he is seeing Christ. He's perceiving the invisible one because he knows, for example, he knows the Abrahamic covenant. He knows the promise. He knows the reward of following Christ. Now, he doesn't see Christ, but I know He's going to be here. And saying, we're waiting for Christ to return. The same thing. We don't see, when's Christ coming? The thing, we're in the same position. You don't know when Christ is coming. Okay, we have timelines. But the, even the very fact that you think you can pinpoint the time is, again, an indication that you're wrong because you don't know. The ideal is, do you see him who is invisible? Yes, and I also know the day he's coming back. Well, then now he's not invisible anymore because you've got the date figured out. And so you don't have the date figured out because 
you've got to keep trusting in the invisible. You've got some information. Now, again, I know there's certain timelines, and it's not going to be, you know, we know the seasons, you won't be surprised. And I've got charts and times. But the idea there is you're, you're going to be surprised until the very end because you've got to be living by faith. He left Egypt not fearing the king's uh, anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. And the important thing about that is he persevered. He was able to maintain 40 stinking years in the wilderness watching sheep because he could see Christ. He could see Christ by faith. Now, after 40 years, he's actually going to meet the burning bush where the Lord is going to appear in the burning bush. But up until that time, he was seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And that's where he was given directions. And by faith, he implemented that. So where he began, this is where it started, if anything, it starts talking about him beginning the festivals, beginning the institutions of the law, beginning with Passover. Uh, but by faith, he had the instructions and he followed that. Not, again, not seeing, not knowing anything, but this is what the Lord wants to every family, get a lamb, wipe the blood on the door. Now, how does that even make sense? You're going to kill a lamb, wipe the blood on the, 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 the door frame, uh, the threshold, or not the threshold, but the door jams and the, and the header. It's like, and, and it's like, what's, what's going to happen? Just do it. It's like by faith, he does it and, and saved all the first. Because apparently... If you didn't have that blood on the door, the firstborn is going to die of men and animals. So if there was someone that doubted, say, well, I'm not going to, that sounds stupid. What's some magic blood going to, what's it going to, well, the firstborn's dying. So Moses taught them and, and instituted it, and they followed and did it, and all the firstborns were, per- Egypt's firstborn died because they mocked it. Israel's all honored it because by that time they honored Moses. Again, the Israelites, by this time, they have seen enough of Moses' plagues that they're like, oh, I mean, they're listening to Moses. In fact, if you read the story, many of the Egyptians leave with them. Because that was, that was the multitude, not just the, that went out there, multitude, what they call the one translates the ramble. The, the, because you had the, the, the people of Abraham, but you also had some people of Egypt, obviously, going with them because they're convinced we we follow the gods and our gods couldn't stop any of it we're going with you guys yeah we're going to the promised land come on oh the promise let's go and they're headed to the promised land and not knowing that they're going to end up in the wilderness for 40 years and that 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 group caused some problems the mob caused some problems for them in, because they wanted to go back to egypt too by faith he kept the passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of israel and then next week, we'll, we'll pick this up here. By faith, the people, people that would be the people that came out with him, passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Now notice right here, by faith, Israel is able to pass through the Red Sea because of faith. Uh, but the Egyptians tried to do so. They could not because they didn't have faith. So there's going to see just kind of this verse point we can see here. Uh, you're going to have in the story, the Lord is going to part the Red Sea and bring the people across, and the Lord's going to destroy the Egyptians. You're going to have the east wind going to part the Red Sea and then close in on the Egyptians. So you've got the Lord doing it. You've got nature doing it. In this verse, you've got faith or unbelief. Israel, here it says, it says they passed through the Red Sea because... 
the Lord opened it up. It doesn't say that, although that's true. It doesn't say they passed through the Red Sea because the east wind blew it back. That's what happened. It says that in the scriptures. It had some natural event. And we can add to this list angels. Because anytime you see the Lord giving a command and nature following, who's doing it? Biblically, the angels are doing it, like Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord commanded. There was an atmospheric outburst. But who was there? The angels were doing it. And so this is not indicate. Well, it comes up later in the, in, the, in the New Testament. The angels gave Moses the law. But it was the Lord. But anyway, in this account, what's interesting, in, in the writer of Hebrews, he doesn't say the Lord part of the Red Sea, although we know that's true, and he knows it's true. He doesn't say the east wind. They watch the east wind. It doesn't say anything about the angels, although this book spent plenty of time talking about angels. He says, by faith, they passed through it. It's like, well, they had faith, because if they didn't have faith, they just would have stood on the, on the shores and been afraid. I don't think so because the Egyptians didn't have faith and they weren't afraid to run into it. They all drowned. So that's not the point. The point is, by faith, they were acting in faith. Moses, you know, you know, don't be afraid. And he stepped forward, held up his arms, and the water parts, and the people followed. So there the people are given, being given credit by faith, although there's many other things involved. Again, you can use that as an example. The Lord's doing this in your life. Nat- natural things are taking place. There's going to be angelic involvement, but you're going to do, do an act also to follow the Lord. And the Hebrews, the Israelites of 4, 1446 are given credit for having faith. And then, then we have 40 years of silence because at that point, uh, there are three days without water and they started murmuring and complaining. Now they want food and now they want to go back and now they can't go in the promised land. And it's just 40 years. And that's where Moses like, when was Moses persevering? I mean, you look at Moses' life and I'll quit. You've got, you know, rate, rate, you, can't, you got, what was your best part of your life? You got 40-year period, rate them. You've got your time in Egypt, crown prince. You've got your time in the wilderness with the sheep. You've got your time of 40 years in the wilderness with the Hebrews. What was your favorite? How would you rate them? Looking at this right here, I would say if I had to rate my life and I was Moses, this was my favorite part. This was pretty good. I wish I would have died at 80. <laughs> you know? I mean, so I mean, his life, you can see his life going, his life went like this. He followed Christ. The, he was having his best life now, and Christ got involved. And it ended up 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness with sheep is one thing. But 40 years in the wilderness with these people. After you hear what they're doing, and he, he, he ends up, you know, smashing the rock. And after 40 years here, God calls him and says, okay, you don't get to go to the promised land. What? <laughs> what? I mean, that, that, again, I, I know it's fair. I know it's right. But it's one of those things where it's kind of like, yeah, if I meet me and Moses hang out, I was like, yeah, well, I think he got screwed on that. I don't think, I think that, that was something, was, God was having a bad day. Because, I mean, he should have cut you some slack. Because that just doesn't seem, all of this, 120 years of faith, 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 obedience, obedience, 40 years in the wilderness, walked away from Egypt, and now he hits a rock. It's like, you can't go in the promised land. What? Again, he broke a, a, a type and a shadow, and there's a variety of things that are involved in that. Plus, I think, we go through this, one thing you can see through this whole thing is Moses had a temper. I mean, he, I mean and he was a, a grandson of Levi. And Levi and Simeon destroyed Sechem. So you can see a lifestyle pattern there maybe in his family. Again, that now, now we're getting all, you know, 
Freudian on this right here. I don't know. That's way out of my league. I'll pray and we're done. Father, do thank you for the chance to look into your word. We ask that we again would apply it to our own lives, that we would be able to consider our world that we live in of being a temporary thing, a thing we're going to use for your glory at this time in history, but we're keeping our eyes on Jesus and on the future and on the rewards that are set aside for us. Father, do ask that we would live a life that is pleasing to you and we do the things you've called us to and not waste our opportunity. We do thank you for the scriptures, for the spirit and fellowship with other believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your time.